Can you remember back to your favorite birthday party? Now, however you like to celebrate your birthday, uh, you are the guest of honor. You are what's being celebrated. And as embarrassing as it can be, it can be enjoyable at times. Some of you, your favorite ones were just as a kid. Others of you had some great experience as an adult. But this whole concept of being the the guest of honor, the focus of attention is something that, that we are all familiar with. Uh, We are looking forward to getting back to having birthday parties, right? Back to having maybe banquets or being part of celebrations where we can can really honor somebody for something that they have done. Maybe how they are important to us or our life, whatever it may be. Well, we must remember that as we are continuing in the book of John, this is still right after Lazarus was being raised from the dead. And Jesus is going to be in two settings, and we're going to look at two settings in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 19, in which Jesus is the guest of honor, in which Jesus is the focus of celebration. And while there is a great example, there are some poor examples we'll see as well as to how we can honor Jesus. And all this as we try and strive to be more devoted followers of Christ. So there's two settings. Let's dive into the first one. The first setting is this. The first setting is the meal. Now remember, I told you Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. He went away for a little while, but Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they wanted to honor Jesus for what he did. He brought their brother back to life, and so they did what we would do. Hopefully, we just provide a great meal, uh, inviting friends and family. Jesus is the focus of this event, and this is where we pick up in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, six days. Before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those who was reclining at the table with him. Here in verse 3, we have the story where Mary is anointing Jesus. So then Mary uh, Mary took about a pint a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, many of us are familiar with this device here, and it may not look like this, but my guess is that, that we all have one of these in our home, and if we don't, we know someone who does. This whole industry of, you know, the essential oils is just fascinating. And it's just like one ounce of essential oil. It can, it can get pretty expensive. Uh, we just have, you know, just less than half a dozen, even in our own home. But I have some friends who just talk about the cases and cases, this whole essential oil setup that they have. And we know how just like pouring just a couple drops from these one ounce, uh, one ounce things that we get from essential oils uh, can just fill the room with these, with these diffusers. And when we enjoy this, can you imagine a pint, (laughs) a pound of this oil poured all over someone's feet? Here is Jesus' feet filled the room. Now, uh, pure nard looks like this, and uh, it's found kind of in northern India and the Himalayas. It has a very earthy smell, kind of like moss, this spicy, woody smell. I really don't know much about essential oils, so please don't uh, leave me any comments about my, my lack of ability to describe nard, but it's a very manly smell, and it just filled the room. 
And the response to Mary's action here is what John would love us to focus on. And the response comes from Judas. Judas objected. And this is what he said. He said, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And the reality is a lot of us would actually respond the same way, right? Like if we had this really expensive bottle of perfume or jar of essential oil and we just kind of dumped it out, like, what are are you doing? You know, I just, I want to honor Jesus with, well, you sell it. You know, there's so many good things that we could do with this. And for some of us, like a year's worth of wages, like contained in a pint, like just think about how mad you would be if your kid opened the fridge and just dumped out a gallon of milk. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like we'd be like, whoa, whoa, time out, what are you doing? You're like, this is not, this is not okay behavior. And Mary's just look, look down on, the Gospel of John gives us a little bit more detail behind Judas's objection. So we continue to read. He did not say this, it says, because he cared about the poor, but because he was a, what does it say? But because he was a thief. And as the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. I say, ah, Judas. Selfish motives, right? On the outside, they look great. But he was like, man, we could sell this and give so much to the poor, and I could pocket some too. Jesus comes to Mary's defense and he says this. He says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, is it possible that Mary somehow was catching on to what Jesus has been laying down this entire gospel as we've been been listening and watching this unfold where she understands, she truly understands that Jesus is going to his death and that this is just this kind of burial act where she's trying to make his body smell as good as it can be maybe maybe it's also possible that in this setting of celebrating Jesus in this setting of honoring Jesus because he just gave you your brother back she thought what could I possibly give Jesus in return to show my gratitude and this gregarious act of generosity was just to find the most expensive thing she had in her possession and just pour it on Jesus it's a beautiful image of generosity. It's a beautiful image of selflessness, especially in comparison to Judas's selfishness. And the selfishness continues. We read in verse 9, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews, now, like this is just ramping up. How many people are starting to come see Jesus? Found out that Jesus was there. Remember, he had kind of gone away. It's like, where'd Jesus go? They found out that he was there. And not only because of him, They came there not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Remember, like this is one of the reasons why Jesus was picking up weight. This isn't just a guy claiming to be the Messiah. He actually has power over life and death. We got to see this guy. They didn't have social media. They couldn't, you know, see all the the BuzzFeed headlines of, of like, this is Judas walking into the grocery store. And this is Judas walking to his car. Judas, this is Lazarus walking to the grocery store. And this is Lazarus walking to his car. They They didn't have that capability. Right, they had to see it for themselves. So they went. Now we remember in chapter 11, the chief priests and the Pharisees, after they saw Jesus 
raised Lazarus from the dead, they were like, well, we need to kill Jesus. Like, this is getting out of control. So they plotted to take his life, and their plot just added a whole new layer. It says this, so the chief priests made plans to, they wanted to kill Lazarus as well. Because as long as Lazarus was alive, it was proof that Jesus was who he said he was. So it wasn't enough to just get rid of Jesus anymore. They had to get rid of Lazarus as well. This is the first setting. This all happened around a meal where Jesus is being honored for raising Lazarus from the dead. Let's go and move to the second setting. And this setting is one that may be a little bit more familiar to us, especially on Palm Sunday. The second setting is the setting of the masses. And we're just going to pick right up in chapter 12, verse 12, and it says this, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches, and they went out to meet him, shouting, and this is where they're going to quote Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And then we see this, that Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written in Zechariah 9.9. He's fulfilling a prophecy. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And this is a passage that most of us are familiar with, where it's just Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and we have this, you know, image of just Jesus riding on a donkey, and it's a celebration, it's joyful, uh, but there's actually something going on underneath all this that we should catch up to. First of all, we remember that, like, Jerusalem was home to about 50,000 people, but in the time of Passover, it easily easily doubled in size. And so you had well over 100,000 people coming to Jerusalem. And we read and we know that like other people besides the Israelites, besides the Jewish nation was coming to Jerusalem to check out this Jesus guy. They wanted to know who he was. And so, you know, Jesus was coming into this crowd. He was walking down the road from Bethany to Jerusalem. Like this crowd would make Costco Sunday afternoon look like a walk in the park. I mean, it was just just crammed with people. No social distancing going on here. And they're waving palm branches, and they know exactly what they're doing. And to to explain this more, let's go on a very brief history lesson about coins. That's right. So uh, this is a coin uh, that uh, the the Greeks uh, minted And it's of the Greek goddess Nike. Now, before Nike was a shoe company or on Michael Jordan's foot flying through the air, uh, it was a Greek goddess of victory. And what does the Greek goddess of victory hold in her hand? She holds a palm branch. And you see, this is about 67 BC. And around that same time, uh, there was something in Jerusalem called the Maccabean Revolt. And the Maccabean Revolt is where the oppressive forces in the city were driven out. And when the victor came back in, Maccabee was was met with palm branches and the Israelites minted coins to, to remember this victory. And the coins looked like this. Now, obviously, we can't really see what these are. So here's a better image of it. They have palm branches on it to symbolize the victory of getting Jerusalem back. About 
102 AD, the Romans minted a coin with Victoria on it. And Victoria is for victory, right? And what is she holding? She's holding a palm branch. Palm branches were a national sign of victory. Palm branches meant you have defeated your oppressor. Palm branches meant that your nation was going to be restored, that you were going to have the right power in place. And before we put too much uh, on these Israelites for waving palm branches, let's just walk a mile in their shoes. Because all of us can empathize with this idea of anticipation because we've had a year in the making. We can all, no matter what perspective we bring to this conversation, we all anticipate a day free of masks and social distancing and all that comes with this thing that we've had in our lives for the past year called COVID. We all anticipate being free from that no matter what perspective we're bringing to the conversation. And it's only been a year in the making. And, and I know this, I've talked to many of you all over from all different perspectives. And the frustration around this, it does not take long because just a year in the making, it does not take long for our frustration because we've just been worn thin. Imagine our anticipation about being free from this thing called COVID. Imagine our anticipation about being, you know, uh, not having to wear a mask all the time and being able to, to handshake and to high five and to hug and to stand shoulder to shoulder again. Imagine that multiplied by generations. Hundreds of years where oppressing force after oppressing force, world power after world power keeps just running you into the ground. And you have these moments of victory only to be met with another defeat. And the one thing that the nation of Israel had that no other tribe has ever had in history is God's promise that a king is coming. God's promise that a king is coming. There are reasons why they recited the Psalms and why they recited the scriptures on their way back to the Passover. So they wanted to remind themselves the truth. There is a king coming, there is a king coming, and this year there is a king. This year there is a Messiah. This isn't, doesn't sound or feel like the false messiahs we've had in the past. No, 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 he's not the guy, he's not the guy. But as the day gets closer and as tens of thousands keep coming to Jerusalem, all of a sudden he raises Lazarus from the dead and that was a game changer. And we have generational anticipation coming to a head in a city that is overcrowded, and we can understand why and there's Greeks there, there are Romans there. The Israelites knew what they were doing by holding a palm branch up saying, hey, this is our guy. <laughs> this is our guy. He's going to drive you out. Soon he's going to raise the military. And by God's power, he's just going to give us the victory over our city and over our nation. And we catch up to the fact that one of the most dangerous things that we can do when we read the scriptures is, is to look at scriptures like this. We say, oh man, Judas, dude, come on, man. Don't, don't be a thief. You didn't have to be a thief. Like you're one of Jesus' 12. Like how did you end up being a thief? 
You look at the chief priests and the Pharisees, and you're like, oh, those guys are so corrupt. You know, the crowd, it's just like, oh, man, these poor Israelites, you know, how sad is this actual, is this actual event? And one of the biggest mistakes we can make as we read these accounts in Scripture is that we forget that like nine out of ten times, or maybe ten out of ten times, we're actually the bad guy in the story, not the good guy. So Mark, I wouldn't be like Judas. Are you kidding? I'm not like Judas at all. Remember his gut reaction to when Mary just gave this gregarious, generous gift? Do you know how much money that is? Do you know how much good that would help the poor help other people? And we knew the whole time he was a thief. He said, well, I'm not a thief. Is it possible that in your life, a pastor, a friend, a family member, or a spouse, someone has encouraged you, hopefully the Holy Spirit has prompted you to be generous. And your gut response is, are you kidding me? Do you know how much that would cost? Do you know what good I could do with that money? I could pay down my house. I could pay down my car. I could pay down school loans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we find that we are no better than Judas. We are no better than Judas. We look at the chief priests and the Pharisees, and we're like, okay, I've, Mark, I've never wanted to kill. Well, okay, take, I, I've thought there have been times where I've wanted to kill somebody. I would, I'd never kill somebody. No way. Like, that is not me. Well, who were the chief priests and the Pharisees? They were the religious elite. And what did they have in that day? They had power. And look, let's face it. As Americans, we have power. You may not have as much power as the next person, but in your sphere, of relationships, whether it be at work or at home, whatever it is, you have power and influence. And at the heart of the chief priest's selfishness, a self-preservation, they had achieved power and they wanted to preserve what they had because it was comfortable and it was what they knew and it was what they were convincing themselves was right. And I'm just asking the question, is it possible that at some point in your life or maybe even now you are leveraging your own power and influence for a destructive form of self-preservation where you are holding on to something you should not be holding on to? And I mentioned COVID. I mean, COVID has just brought a lot of this to light. But we, selfishness is a sinful thing. We are always struggling with this. Is it possible? We find, man, we're no better than the chief priests and the Pharisees. And we're no better. What about the crowd? You say, well, Mark, I'm ahead of you on this one. I love being an American. I'm a patriot. I love that we get to fight for our country and the freedoms that we have, and that's good. But I know that my faith comes first. I know that my faith in Jesus Christ comes first, and it comes before my nation. It comes before, and I'm still going to fight for all my freedoms, and that's good, and that's well, but I'm ahead of you there. But under, underneath the, the nationalist, selfish desire of the Israelite people is this self-preservation motive to use the victory that Jesus was going to give them, give us, for selfish reasons. What am I talking about? So just a really easy example of this is just like the, the kids' soccer game. 
right? The kid's soccer game. And so before the game, what is this young Christian, this young child, you know, what are they praying for? They, God, give us victory. Help us to be victorious. And maybe they're quoting some, you know, obscure prophetic uh, verse from the Old Testament. You know, God will give us victory over our enemies. Come on, let's go. And she's like, oh, that's silly. You know, they're kids. They don't get it. Uh, but how true is that in our life as adults where we want to use Jesus's victory on the cross for our own selfish motives in an effort at this self-preservation. And we, we miss the cross because we're just so focused on trying to get something we think we deserve. And when we catch up to the fact that we're often the bad guy in the story and not the good guy, we see, man, we're not better than Judas. We're not always better than the chief priests and the Pharisees. We're not always better than the crowd. So now what? So now what? And this whole time, Jesus is, you know, bringing people to himself. And we see here in the in, uh, verse, uh, verse 16, you know, it says the disciples didn't understand this. Verse 17, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. So many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to, to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look at how the whole world has gone after him, Jesus. Amid all these selfish and self-preservation people is showing us what selflessness looks like. And it's bigger than us. And he's a God for all people. He's telling us, he's going to tell them, just in the few verses after this, to, to walk in the light. And what does it mean to walk in the light? And we can look real quick at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, to help us understand this text just a little bit better, we're going to look uh, how a theologian uh, and author helped unpack exactly what this verse means. His name was, uh, last name was Meyer. It says, in this next stage of sin, the moral code is reversed. Sin becomes an accepted way of life. Did you catch up to that? Like we see it as normal and we see it as right. This happens in public morality, which is the whole thing in the verse about light and darkness. They're common to all. But it also happens in private morality. And this is where the verse was talking about bitter and sweet because they're matters of private taste. And what Meyer is saying is just like, look, what, what the prophet Isaiah is saying is we don't see our selfishness. We don't see our self-preservation, which like in the case of like fighting for our life, you know, like that's a good thing. It's a, it's a good instinct we have, but there's a destructive side to it. So how can we understand this? How can we see our selfishness? How can we see our self-preservation? Well, Jesus said, walk in the light. And we think about walking in the light, we think about reflecting Jesus, right? Reflecting Jesus. But the problem with just reflecting Jesus is that we never let Jesus inside. And the problem with this kind of salvation mentality like this, you know, fireproof uh, mentality, right? Fire insurance, if you will. Just like I accept Jesus because I don't, I don't like want to go to hell. 
And that's a great starting point. But when we truly become devoted followers of Christ, we let the light inside of us. Now, when I go camping with my family, uh, you know, you get up in the middle of the night, kids got to use the bathroom, you walk into the bathroom, one person has a flashlight, I got a couple kids in tow, and they're like, Dad, shine the light over there. Dad, shine the light over there. Dad, I heard something over there. I'm like, guys, 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 I got the light. I got this. We're good. Selflessness is a proactive endeavor where we allow the light to shine on all the dark areas of our life and of our heart that we would rather not look at and we'd rather not be aware of. Allowing us to see the Judas is hiding in our heart, allowing us to see the chief priests hiding in our heart, allowing us to see the crowd, the masses, if hiding in our heart. Yeah, other people. It's a great way to, to see this as well. It's, there's a reason why they say, you know, you'll, you'll never know how selfish you are until you get married. You'll never know how selfish you, are to, selfish you are until you have kids. There's something about inviting someone into your life to show you your selfishness. We need to invite Jesus into our life so that he can help us become selfless. And how much more, how much more does God have in store for us if we can learn to be selfless? Mary was selfless. And as she broke open that bottle of perfume and poured it over Jesus, how much more so did God break open the bottle of heaven and pour out Jesus for all of us? His love, his compassion, his grace, his forgiveness, his mercy, and on and on and on. And how much more if that pint of perfume filled the room with that wonderful, mossy, earthly smell, how much more if we truly let Christ in our lives, how much more could he fill our life? We're trying to hold on to our finances. I got finances waiting for you. You don't even know what blessing looks like in your finances until you become selfless. How much more when we're trying to hold on to the things that are comfortable to us, the things that we've achieved, how much more is God saying, I have a comfort for you that you cannot experience anywhere else. You need to learn to be selfless. Let that go. Stop fighting for what you think comfort looks like. How much more of the victory of Jesus can we experience when we learn to let go of what we think Jesus is supposed to be victorious uh, supposed to be victorious of in our life and realize he is the victor of life and death he has victory over it he's done the work you know the whole irony to this passage is Passover week and what did Passover you know start but way back in Egypt when the the lamb was slain and and the angel of death was went over and Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb and we're going to get there. But how much more of a life of true blessing does God want us to experience if we can just learn to just become selfless and learn to let go of these destructive self-preservation things in our life? You know, Jesus rode in the triumphal entry. And just like Mary signaled more than she knew when she was anointing Jesus, the Israelites signaled more than they knew for a king who was more than they ever thought he would be. And that's worth celebrating. 
Jesus did not ride into Jerusalem wanting to be imprinted on a coin to be touted as some kind of victorious aspect in history. Jesus came to be imprinted on our heart so that we could experience a true life of freedom. It only happens when we become more and more devoted followers of Christ, letting go of our selfish desires and learning to live selflessly. Let's pray together. So Heavenly Father, help us in this area. We need your help. Shine your light into our hearts and help us in this area so that we can become more devoted followers of Christ, so that we can show you honor so that we can be more like Mary in this story and less like Judas and less like the chief priests and Pharisees and less like the crowd. Help us. Thank you that you are in control. Thank you that you know what you're doing. Thank you that you have a plan. Thank you that you love us so much that you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for our sins. And this Friday, which will be Good Friday, as we just take time to bask in the selflessness of Christ. I pray that we would become more devoted followers of Christ and learning how to live this out in our lives day after day after day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.